Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine and you're listening to uh, the first episode of a new series of the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance FM. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the art of living philosophically with uh, se- series editor of the Art of Living book series, Mark Vernon, and, who's also written a book on well-being, which we'll be talking to him about, and also featuring Z- Ziad Mara on uh, deception and Pierce Ben on commitment, which we'll be talking to them later on. Uh, uh, but first of all, I want to ask Mark a few things about the the series itself. So, so, Mark, what is the Art of Living series about, and why did you, or why did your publishers want to start that? Hello, Grant. Hi. Yeah. Um, I, in a way, the uh, the idea was that a bit like you might be able to write a poem on uh-huh. any subject. Right. Um, you could uh, offer some philosophical reflection on more or less any subject as right. well. So all the books have these single word titles like Mind's Wellbeing, Ziad's is Deception, yeah. and Piers is his Commitment. Um, and the idea is that um, I suppose that philosophy, maybe a bit like poetry too although in a different way um, helps you to look at things in a different way to right. have different perceptions of things by discernment, by teasing so, arguments mean, out, so that's, that's kind of the goal around the, the subjects of the books Stop you, I mean is it does that have a particular theme to the series is it particularly about philosophy of everyday life experiences or is there some, is it every every type of emotion that's covered or something like that? Um, it's, it's, in a way, the, the, the limits of the series are set by the writers who want to write on a certain subject. I mean, the uh, idea is that all the books have a sort of philosophical backbone. Right. So they need to be able to reference um, something in the philosophical tradition, if you like, right. people in the past who've written on the subject too and develop them with new insights um, and for present conditions. Um, but broadly, I suppose also the idea comes from the way that the ancient Greeks would have done philosophy. And they were just as interested in asking the how should we live questions mm-hmm. as the what do we think questions so it's um, about how how we should live giving us clues about how we should live from the from the minds of uh, great current philosophers yeah I, and again it's not it's not like self-help i suppose it's you, you you won't get one of these books and find you know 10 top tips and um, for having a happy life um, <coughs> but what you might do is you might have a um some resources that help you to think about your own experience um and the experience of others um and that you know will change the way you look at the world with with, with luck oh yeah um so you're saying that the authors choose their own topics is that right or do you is that how it yeah, works? I mean, um, authors uh, um, that, that across the series, there's about 20 books, I think, now, and across the series, um, different authors have different backgrounds, but uh, a common thing, actually, is that um, they might well be people who have worked in academic philosophy for right. quite some time, sure. but wanted the chance to write a little bit more freely about a subject that had always interested them, um, but that didn't quite fit into the right. sort of academic right. scope. So this is their chance to write more of an essay, you know, rather than a you know, heavily footnoted academic treatise. Yeah, well, I mean, when you use the word essay, I read a couple of these books, and I didn't find them to be, like, academic or any way. I mean, they are, like, uh, philosophers trying to bring the discipline of philosophy to bear on the problems of everyday living to me, you know, mm. and I think that's an admirable um, endeavour. Um, uh, well, first, now I want to ask you a, f- a few things about your own book, which is Wellbeing. Um First of all, I, I suppose I better ask, what is it and what causes it well-being? Well, maybe <clears throat> just answer a slightly different question. In a way, the, the reason why it's called well-being is because it's not happiness. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so why didn't you do happiness? Because I think that happiness is uh, a rather bad thing to aim for in life. Um, there oh, is a, and there's a lot about happiness in I our could, culture I would at the have moment. said it's the only thing to aim for in life. Well, if you, when, oh. you, when, you, when you start reading the great philosophers of happiness, they right. nearly all agreed that um, if you go for happiness, then it will elude you. The, perhaps the most famous remark was made by John Stuart Mill, right. who said, ask yourself whether you're happy and you cease to be so. Now, John mm-hmm. Stuart Mill didn't want to have sad <coughs> lives. He wanted no. us to have rich and flourishing lives. So, in a way, the first point of my book, by calling it well-being, is yeah. to say... Forget happiness in a way, because uh, the more you try and grasp it, the more likely you are to miss it. It's a bit like love. Yeah. You know, if you walk around the world saying, I want to be in love, you can be sure of one thing, that everyone will run in the opposite direction. <laughs> so, um, you'll never find it. So it's how to be well, but in a sort of psychological sense, I suppose. Well, it's partly psychology, but it's also um, philosophy, of course, too. It's, in a way, it's asking, you know, what is it to be human and uh, what is it to, to flourish, um, to become all that you might be able to become as a human being. That, oh, that would be a sort of definition so you of set yourself a simple goal in uh, uh, forty thousand words or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Why did you want to cover this theme in particular, Mark? 
I suppose it, it comes out of my own, um, the little bit of academic work I did do, I did do a PhD, um, and my PhD was on Plato, and I was very interested in how um, Plato tried to ask these kind of how should we live questions. Right. I, I looked, as you do in PhDs, at one particular dialogue, and it was very narrowly and tightly focused, um, but had sort of a broader ideas, I guess, about the way that the ancient Greeks in particular did their philosophy um, and they did knit what we now call <coughs> philosophy the uh -huh. kind of sharp questions about how we think rational questions with insights into human psychology with concerns about aesthetics uh, emotions and okay. so on so the book tries to do some of that work around this question of well-being okay um well, you know, you mentioned that it's not about happiness, but I want to ask you, how far is personal well-being, as you've talked about it, related to personal happiness or contentedness? And if, uh, if they're not the same thing, then uh, why should, you know, why should you give up happiness for the sake of something else? I think part of the problem is that the word happiness is just too kind of thin for us now. I mean, it sometimes yeah. remarks that Aristotle uses this word eudynamia, and that's sometimes translated as happiness, but <coughs> he meant something good much spirits, richer. doesn't really. it? Like, happy spirits? Yeah, it, I mean, it literally means good-goddedness, but it, yeah. it's kind of uh, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's, you know, all that it might be to have a, um, a well-developed character, um, to practice a virtuous life, uh, to flourish. Okay. Um, whereas happiness, in a way, I think today just means, you know, are you feeling good or not? It doesn't, it just can't really bear the full weight, I don't think, anymore. So if I can translate that into maybe modern, more modern ways of thinking, you're talking about what you might call long-term happiness rather than, you know, the instant pleasures of things. Well, I actually think it's just best just to stop talking about happiness. Mm, really? <laughs> okay. Because you constantly get drawn back to this question of, you know, are you feeling up or down? And, yeah. I mean, Aristotle thought it was good to feel up, but he thought that just let it go when you feel down. It's not actually the question upon which your life should stand or fall. Um, in a way, that's the, that's the logic of the addict who wants to feel high all the time mm. Um, mm. and it doesn't go anywhere. I'd like to second what, what Mark's saying a bit. In, uh, as someone who has actually did... Sorry, this did, is the ad people. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, I did actually write a book with the word happiness in the title, but the, uh, the title was The Happiness Paradox, and it was trying to recognise something that's similar to what you're saying, which is it's not a sort of destination you can just grab in that self-helpy way. Yeah. In fact, if those self-help books were actually to work, they'd only need to be one of them. Yeah. So there is a problem, I think, in trying to conceptualise happiness. And I think part of the problem is that you're trying to merge together an ancient prescription of the kind you've described, which is how ought I to live, along with a much more modern one, which, which you've also alluded to, which is what do I really want? And I think those two create a bit of a, a tension in terms of our modern attempt to be happy. I, I think it sounds like you've got <coughs> agreement there. So you've got two philosophers agreeing. Isn't that a miracle in itself? Um, but anyway... We should perhaps say there was one philosopher who would disagree with that, uh -huh. um, which is um, John, Jeremy Bentham, right. um, the famous mm. London-based philosopher, right. in fact. And he did Whose think that you could go... UCL, UCL's <coughs> hall. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he did think you could go for happiness. And in fact, the science of happiness, um, which is what you hear about a lot these days is based on Benthamite philosophy yeah. but Mill was Bentham's godson his kind of prodigy and, and uh, Mill uh, almost immediately disagreed with he Bentham. He meant sort of pleasure didn't he really I think. Yeah the greatest happiness for the greatest number maximising pleasure minimising uh, pain and so on. Well I think though that Mill <coughs> does tend to conflate. This is Pierce. Yeah the Mill <laughs> does tend to conflate the ideas of pleasure and happiness in, in his essay Utilitarianism he does use the words interchangeably um, although I'm sure he would appreciate as he implies elsewhere that the two things are not the same. Just a, a brief point though about self-help and the connection between uh, euphoric feelings and, and well-being. I mean, I, I take your point. I mean, Marx is, is making a sort of Aristotelian point. I mean, happiness is, is about flourishing rather than feeling euphoric. But I think, just to be fair to Bentham, I mean, you, there's got to be some connection between them. I think I wouldn't like to go through my life uh, living well while being subjectively totally miserable. And also, I mean, there is good mm. and bad self-help. I think, that, okay, there might be a lot of dross at airports and so on, I mean, how to become a millionaire overnight and things like that. But, but there might also be good self-help which is practical, psychologically driven advice on how to get what you want. Not telling you what you should want, perhaps, but just how to get it. Uh, but the point is, first of all, you've got to know what you want, right? And yeah, what, we're, what we're saying is, I guess, if you go for happiness, then you're often going to be disappointed. But if you go for your well-being and for your positive thriving, then you've got a more... Uh, you've got a road ahead of you that you can possibly take. Um, um, it seems to be that your idea of well being, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it about maximising success? No. Um, I think, at the end of the day, <clears throat> I, I fall in line with Plato and right. what um, Plato understood to be the kind of key question for we human beings. He thought the key question, I think, revolves around um, love, 
And what he meant by love was um, how, for we humans, um, we um, know an awful lot, we appreciate an awful lot about the world around us, but that very knowledge precipitates this question or concern for what we don't know, what we don't understand. So we live in in between worlds, as Plato puts Uh it, um, and we're we're both um, sort of ignorant but conscious of our ignorance, if you like. Um, And this fires a kind of passion in us, which he called called love, the desire to, to, to discover what we lack. And that can be both very good, because it leads to our creativity so and our discovery but it can also destroy us alter even you know because it can frustrate us and leave us feeling um as if we're floating kind of on the void um so th- for, for, for plato the question is you know how do you channel this energy um which is partly philosophical partly psychological mm-hmm. partly artistic um partly religious i think or at least spiritual yeah. um how do you channel it um in a in such a way that um you you know you can as it were um be as rich a human being as it might be possible rich in what sense though um, I guess uh, he it's sort of a, it, it's an expansive humanity. I mean, he, he very famously talks about this in um, dialogues like the Symposium, and he um, envisages a kind of ascent um, where um, the human being is awakened to this thing called love by falling in love. Um, the the, the well, everyday love being a experience. desire for what you lack. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what that's certainly one definition he he offers of it. Yeah. Uh, but he, he he describes falling in love, and but he thinks that just the fall in love isn't really enough, and that really what that precipitates is an awareness that other things are beautiful in, in this world um, and so it fires a kind of desire to discover those and uh, he, he thought that mathematics was beautiful geometry right. was beautiful it's so he it fired him to pursue those questions and, and ultimately it leads to a kind of beatific vision for Plato but, um, which, which is a kind of spiritual experience But is it possible that your concept of what is lovable would be different than Plato's for instance in which case you've got different goals and so there, is there, I guess what I'm asking is is, is there one set of principles for well-being that would apply to everybody or is it just really particular to individuals? No, I mean there's a, there's a huge discussion um, yeah. about well-being clearly in the utilitarian uh, view which is the one we were talking about there yeah. wouldn't go the, the way, the platonic way at all um, and I guess that the utilitarian way is the one that has most currency in Utilitarianism the is the greatest happiness for the greatest number Yeah, so many public policy for decisions for example are, are taken uh, to try and ensure that more people benefit than, than uh, don't benefit yeah. and you know that quite practical on that level but I guess at a more personal level an individual level that's not enough to live by I don't think people want more than just uh, sort of uh, enough pleasures um, mm. and, in, and quite often they're quite pre- they're prepared to stomach a lot of pain to pursue something that um, they think is more worthwhile so, so, so how, how can I achieve well-being I think it's a whole way of life. Um, right. I think, and again, this is something which the ancient Greeks were very good on. It's not just a rational argument that you can summarise in five minutes or even a whole hour. Uh-huh. Um, Plato's philosophers well, um, lived in an academy. In Thirty seconds or a minute. <laughs> well, they lived in an academy, mm-hmm. and it required they are, they ask questions not just about what they think, but you know what they eat and the pattern of the day, how they're orientating their whole lives, um, and then through this kind of long process. Um, remember that Aristotle studied with Plato for twenty years so, before yeah, he set but out no, on his own. I mean, yeah, so it takes a whole. Life, but what do you do in your life to achieve this? Well, you have, I guess um, it's a question of discipline and focus, and you make a commitment to a pattern of life that you think is going to um, lead you in um, a rich direction. I mean, an analogy might be having children. Uh-huh. Um, you know, people will have a child, um, and there'll be many ups and downs uh, through that process. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, they hope to become maybe grandparents and look back and think that was a very rich experience. Um, it, was, it, it bothered us hugely at some points, but on the whole, we, f- we feel more satisfied and complete um, because we've gone through that process. Yeah, but I mean... You can you can pursue all your instincts, I guess, is one way. But I think you bring in also in your book the idea of the transcendent. Now, what do you mean by the transcendent? Yeah, well, I buy the um, the, the platonic idea here, really, that um, there is this kind of a sense of love which knits together um, both rational thought and uh, our human sensibilities, um, our emotions, our feelings, um, our psychology, um, and that um, it seems to be a very common human experience that this gives us glimpses of, say, eternal things, even though we um, are timed creatures, we live in time. It gives uh-huh. us a sense of the infinite, although so we're finite we, creatures. If we cultivate love, we're cultivating well being and touching something eternal or transcendent. I think so, yeah, yeah. and I, I f- that, that makes some sense to me. 
Um, I mean, you can do it in the, the way that Plato did partly, which is by looking at mathematics. Um, and many mathematicians will have the experience that they're discovering something when they do mathematics um, rather than just making something up or just using a tool. Um, and so th- I think that that's a sort of part of what Plato's driving at. Mark, do you think that everyone shares this appetite for the transcendent? Do you feel mm-hmm. that somehow our lives are incomplete without mm-hmm. that satisfied on some level? I guess it's kind of, does everyone have a God-shaped <laughs> hole, if yeah, you like? a bit like that. Um, well, I, I mean, p- clearly not everybody does. Um, and many people... <laughs> particularly people who get involved with philosophy will um, say they, they precisely don't. Um, but I guess most people do. Um, you know, I, I was looking at uh, um, a world survey on religious feeling the other day, and only less than 2% of the world seem to feel that um, a non-transcendent universe is one that they find satisfying. Most people um, commit to some kind of transcendent worldview. So it seems to be a very, very yeah. common human mm. experience. Yeah, that's well, that's a whole other show in itself to go down there. I mean... Uh, why are so many people in this society depressed and what can we do about it as a society just quickly yeah well and i mean another huge question i i I think that uh, but i mean partly it's because we um, have better diagnostic techniques for depression and many perhaps more tools to try and deal with depression and whether or not they're any good is another question again but but i think also that um we are, I suppose I would go so far as to say I feel we live in a world that's at risk uh, of narrowing down what it is to be human kind of thinning right. it out, a consumer lifestyle if you like, that isn't ultimately satisfying and this throws people onto crises of meaning um, and wondering, you know, isn't the more but n- without really the resources to turn anywhere else when all you've got is Tesco's if you like <laughs> Okay, well uh, on that note we'll play the next track which is PJ Harvey and uh, Send His Love to Me and then we'll be talking to Pierce Ben on Commitment
Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance FM, which you know, of course. Uh, we're talking about books from the Art of Living series, which is a, a series on uh, the philosophy of life by acumen. And now I'm going to be talking to Pierce Ben on uh, on his book Commitment. Now, Pierce is just about about to take up a job as a visiting. Medical Medi- lecturer yeah. in King's College? Well, I'm not a medical doctor, but lecturer in medical ethics. But okay. it, of course, it's all in the back of philosophy, though, which is what I yeah, really do. Yeah, which is what we really need. Yeah. So, but if we can focus on commitment, I mean, if you want to define commitment for us, Piers. Well, it's, it's, uh, I hope you wouldn't ask that, because it's actually rather difficult to do. <laughs> I do begin the book by um, listing a number of associated ideas with commitment, uh-huh. such as refusal to be deflected, being subjectively sure or nearly sure of something, uh-huh. sticking with something... Um, being uh, morally serious in some way about, say, uh, politics or religion or ethics. And what I'm really trying to do is to ask... I mean, it partly connects with Mark's theme of well-being, actually, so I'm glad we started with that, because it seemed to me um, that my own well-being and people's well-being in general might be greatly enhanced if they really felt rooted in something. Okay. If there's something that made their lives meaningful, whether their work or their relationships or their faith or something of that sort. But then there are problems. There are problems of intellectual honesty when it comes to questions of, say, politics or ethics. And I think that to the extent that anyone is aware of deep and subtle problems, there is a kind of moral duty to work these things out rigorously. I mean, we all have different levels of interest and different abilities to do this, but we have to... I think so the difficulties a, with what? With commitment? With commitment, yes. For example, okay. to religion or to uh, some ethical stance uh, or to politics. Yeah, I suppose that's what's interesting to mm. you about it, is the, you know, the implications yeah. of whether I should be committed... Well, mm. Under what circumstances should I be committed to a set of beliefs or to a person Absolutely, or to something yeah. like this? Yes, exactly. I mean, really, um, I mean, looking back on the book when I'd written it, I discovered there were three sort of main themes. Right. Uh, the areas of life where commitment is an issue. The most fundamental, I think, is love. Right. And, that, and love is many things. I mean, uh, Plato distinguishes, you know, desire from um, friendship and, and so on. Um, but, uh, and I think that those are the most deep commitments we have. And the, the deepest of all the love commitments is probably a parental commitment. Although I do talk more about erotic commitment, which raises yeah. ethical issues. But the other issues are work. Uh, you know, people, the idea of doing a meaningful job. Um, I mean, Marxists in the 19th century thought that uh, the worker is alienated by his work because it was not meaningful. And there's another very good... Well, yeah, but sure, what do you mean by meaningful? Well, exactly. Um, In this situation, you know. Well, I suppose, I mean, there are two elements, I suppose. There's a sense of subjective fulfilment, uh, which is a good thing to have. But then, again, echoing Marx... What, feeling satisfied? Feeling satisfied, yes. But also, I mean, we're looking for something else. If we have the privilege or the luxury, we're looking for work which actually matters. Uh, You know, matters in... Matters to who? Well, um... It could, it might be just matters to oneself, but I think also, I mean, suppose you take being a philosopher very seriously, you might think that it matters to cultivate a life of the mind to the extent that you can, mm-hmm. and also to spread that around. Of course, I don't say that is the, the good life, but it is one... So it matters to you? Yes, or okay. it, but it, it matters to me because I think it matters not just to me, if you like. Um, but that's, but the work is in one area, you know, uh-huh. meaningful work. But the third area, which I think is really the biggest chapter, is the chapter on um, what I called... Um, Faith and uh, politics and uh, and questions about the meaning of life. I mean, I've always been troubled by the fact that I've never had uh, a religious or political commitment, even uh-huh. though very intelligent people I know do have them. Well, what, and because you you think your life is not as meaningful as it could be? Uh, no, I, I I want my life to be more meaningful than it is, but I think it would yeah, be if yeah. I were to have the sort of firmness which a number of extremely accomplished people I know actually have. And one th- thread in that chapter, uh-huh. about particularly about religion, though it applies elsewhere, is, you know, this, this funny uh, thing I noticed, that there are people who are roughly equally qualified as each other right. in terms of commitment to truth, sincerity, knowledge, wisdom, intelligence, all these things, and yet they radically disagree. For example, some of my friends are devout Roman Catholics, some are devout atheists. They're about as bright as each other. Right. They know exactly what the other person's going to say in an argument. As philosophers like to say, they are their epistemic peers, if you want a nice sort of uh-huh. uh, uh, waffle. Well, <coughs> and yet they disagree. How can this be? And I think, well, okay... I think myself into the shoes of one of these people. I mean, somebody I know I used to work with is an advisor to the Pope and a very, very committed Catholic. Uh-huh. Now, he would understand everything I say against Well, that. I hope he's a committed Catholic. Well, you know, I think he probably is. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, he would understand everything that an agnostic like me or an atheist uh-huh. would say. And yet, 
uh, you know, persist with his views. I've never been able to quite to get to that point because I'm always troubled by the thought, ah, oh, but somebody much cleverer than me thinks something else. And I haven't really got to the point when I can be sure enough. But that makes me feel stymied. But I think, you know, OK, let me just... I think, you know, you, you don't base your commitments on absolute knowledge or certainty. You can base your commitments on, uh, I believe this to be the case and yeah. therefore I'm going to commit commit yeah. to this as long as I believe this to be the case or something like that yes. I mean one, one question mm. I was going to ask you about commitment is that um, is, uh, commitment is a good moral principle but maybe the application of it mm. isn't, is it always an only right to break a commitment when we receive information that what we co- are committed to is unethical mm. or is there other r- reasons why we should break commitments well I suppose if you make a commitment believing it to be unethical to make it, then arguably you're in a bit of a moral jam. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing you can do in that situation. Well, don't, that's but not really what I'm no, asking. I'm, no. I'm asking what, are the, it turns out. what yeah. are the conditions on which it's right to break your commitments? Mm. Is it only that you find out that you're committed yeah. to something ethical, or are there other reasons why it would be right to break a commitment? Well, I mean, that, yes, OK, the, the general question that raises is, is another thread in my book, which is, uh. is it good per se to have commitments? Right. I mean, whether or not the commitments are in fact right or not, is there something intrinsically good about the life of commitment, be it the life of faith of some kind? Doesn't it depend on what of, you're committed to? Well, it might, well I mean, I do ha- conclude with a final chapter about the relationship between commitment and the, the meaning of life, and I use examples of people who lead their lives which are subjectively fulfilling... Um, in the pursuit of ideals which a reasonable person would think are completely deluded. Uh-huh. I mean, I used the example of that rather, that tragic comic film, uh, German film, Goodbye Lenin of uh-huh. 2003, about, a, a, very, about a, a woman who's been a teacher in the communist um, um, East Germany. Um, her whole world collapses, although she's never allowed to know about it because she's in a coma. Uh, when the Berlin Wall falls. You know, you might say this was a commitment to something that, first of all, was, was bad, and secondly, didn't just came to nothing. The wall fell down. Uh-huh. And yet, was her life meaningful or not? In one sense, I want to say it was. At the same time, perhaps, if she had known that maybe her views are open to, to doubt, she should have pursued those doubts. So right. we have this tension between the goodness of a life, which is good because it's lived in a committed way, and the moral duty, in some circumstances, to pursue the truth. And my conclusion mm. is rather pessimistic. Uh-huh. Uh, the pursuit of truth, which is a moral requirement in some contexts, actually has the worrying potential to make our lives less happy than they might be. So yeah, here's, um, sorry, it's the idea that you were, it's, it sort of sounds like a different emphasis from what you were saying earlier. I took it you were saying earlier that you were almost envious of those, as an uncommitted person, yeah. envious of those who have that, yes, while am. at the same time <laughs> seeing the limits of that, yeah. uh, of that tension. So yeah. clearly it's not an unalloyed good. No. Um, but um, what is it that's the source of the envy on your part? What's the, what, what's the, I mean, is it because it's such a powerful organising principle that yeah. provides that sense of meaning? I think, I think it is that. I mean, I, I mean, this book is not about me. That would be very sort of boring no. and self-indulgent. But obviously it's, it's clearly drawn from things that my experience have led me to reflect yeah. on. I mean, I do know people who are, I mean, be they Catholics, be they Marxists or whatever they are, who are driven by a, a big life project. I mean, they have some belief. They've thought about it. They may be very bright. They may understand the objections. Yet they think at the end of the day, uh, to, mm. to coin a, a mm. cliche, um, that's how my literature did my life. And that's energising. Um, mm. It's it's incredibly energising. I think I envy people who are energised in that way. Yeah, but I would put... Uh, I mean, the, the opposite... The, col- the corollary of that is, at what point should you abandon commitment to deeply held beliefs? I mean, uh, yeah. Newton held on to his theory of gravity, mm. even though the... the what he observed that the moon's uh, orbit didn't match his theory exactly, mm. um, but he he held on to it and he was vindicated. Uh, I guess the question is, when does counter evidence or counter argument justify altering one's most self influential convictions? Well, I suppose the short answer to that must be when it seems to oneself, having reflected on it for a certain amount of time, um, to be um, uh, required by the evidence. Uh, when there's no going back. Well, you see, that's the thing. This is, again, the tension. The notion of commitment obviously carries the idea of no going back. Right. Um, But, of course, it can't quite literally be that because it's absurd to, uh, you know, think I've got to stick with my early beliefs just because I formed them in a very committed kind of way. Clearly, our views must be revisable. Now, 
if somebody is too ready to revise their views, we might say two things about them. The most likely thing we say about them is they're rather shallow. They're too easily swayed. I mean, if somebody is really, say, committed to a, a, a religious or a non-religious viewpoint, they're not just going to say at the drop of a hat, oh, that's an interesting argument, never thought of that, I'm going to change my mind right now. Yeah. Unless they were ultra-rational. I mean, you, you can imagine yeah. somebody who's just ultra-rational, who always follows the... But at the same time, if somebody's never prepared to abandon their beliefs, if, they, if any counter-evidence or a, another way of thinking just washes, them, washes over them, you'd think, well, this is dogmatism, and dogmatism is a vice. And I do talk about dogmatism uh-huh. and try to analyse dogmatism. What is, what is it? I mean, there's nothing wrong with dogma per se, so what is the vice of dogmatism? And I'm really trying to sort of um, pursue a few threads along those sort of rather uncertain lines. I wonder, Piers, whether there's a, uh, there's a more sort of exciting way of describing that sort of more provisional stance, that non-committed stance, maybe, maybe the example of the novelist with a curious anthropological eye, with somebody who's constantly mm. revising and resubmitting and having a loving susceptibility to the particular, I think as Martha Nussbaum called it once, rather than just sort of this need for the sort of, that sort of large organising, energising principle. Mm. Is there not something wonderful about mm. um, a curious eye? And is there not, mm. should that not weigh in the balance almost as much as the committed? Yes, I it's an interesting thought. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure that is, from what you say, I'm sure that's right. I and mean, maybe I am emphasising too much the idea of pursuing the big world view, mm. uh, the sort of a view with a capital V about uh, uh, about existential questions. But yes, perhaps we should. You can lead a perfectly good life not being interested in these things. I mean, I'm, by, I'm in no way. Really, is that <laughs> true? Or are you just saying that? Well, I think one. Well, yes, you I, could be Charles Dickens. You could read a li- lead a life, but whether it's perfectly good is another question. I guess another thing which I think a lot about at the moment is uh, how, in the modern world, we feel that it's very much up to us as individuals to decide all these questions in life. I mean, the truth is, we do actually live our lives with making all sorts of commitments we don't mm. even realise we've yeah, made. Of course, you know, yes. we get to work every day, all these yeah, kind of things yeah. we don't really mm. bother pursuing. It's just certain questions we do, and mm. and I want I. I I feel like people that I know who have faith commitments, for example, um, of which I know a few, um, it's as much about being part of um, a broader tradition, if you like, and being part of a community um, as it is, you know, do, they don't sit down every morning and think, do I still believe in God or not? Um, they're, they're following a way of life. They're committed to the way of life. And that, that strikes me as something which is uh, admirable. Yes. Well, I do talk about that, and I think you're quite right. I mean, with any, say, religious faith, there are two elements, at least. There's the believing, but maybe more fundamentally, there's the belonging. And in some faiths, maybe certain forms of Judaism, the belonging could be argued to be more fundamental. So you're committed to the people as much as you're committed to the belief. But there's also yeah. a, a sort of propositional underpinning, and this is the problem. Um, you can't... If, if you're aware of the problem, you may not be, but if you, you know, you've got enough self-transcendence to be aware of the problem, it, it ought to trouble one to some extent. The thought, OK, I may be fairly sure of my views in beliefs in liberal democracy or something, but hold on, if I'd been brought up in China or Saudi Arabia, uh-huh. which are not liberal um, democracies, I would not have those beliefs. I, so, suppose, yes. I suppose that people, though, would think that the answers will come at the end of the process, not before you even get going mm. on the process. And again, yeah. churchgoers yeah. don't say, OK, I can believe five out of ten things, I'll go this week. No. Um, they go, it's faith-seeking understanding in, in the yes. famous expression. So maybe we, I wonder whether we, we, it's easy to get things the wrong way around. Well, again, it is faith-seeking understanding, but, um, I mean, there is a propositional component to faith. I mean, I don't mean, um, by faith, I take it, you mean not just religious faith, but then... Well, yeah, just yeah. using that as an example, well, you I mean, guess. You, by that you mean you've got, there's ideas that you're expected to believe. Um, or assume, at least, or yeah, live, live yeah. as if. Live as if live you as believe if. them to be exactly, true, yes. like the, the Anglican Church. What... <laughs> What's a good way for someone to examine their commitments, supposing that they had only five minutes, for instance? To examine their commitments? Yeah, what would be a good way to examine your commitments? Mm. It might depend on what those commitments are. Um, I suppose uh, one might start with the question, how does this commitment of mine, which may be completely unreflective, um, affect my sense of the meaning of my life? And that is not to say that the point of having commitments is somehow... Um, egoistical, it's about making my life go well. Uh-huh. The point is that my life going well is a matter of external things such as my contribution to the good of others, for example, to a bigger good. So um, if I were, say, the, the, the teacher in communist East Germany who goes into a coma and the wall falls down right. and wakes up and it's all collapsed, maybe I should think, well, I shouldn't, my first thought should not be what a tragedy, but um, you know, what was good about what I believed and can it be sustained and in the light of what 
what happened. But you want to always be asking, yeah. searching questions about but your own ideology. That maybe really. that's my own temperament. I, I mean, OK, a lot of people don't ask searching questions. I don't most of the time. And when I do, I never get any answers. And that's, of course, <laughs> the problem. That's why I wrote the book. And that's why the book has no thesis. OK. And uh, <laughs> so now we're going to play Spin Doctors. And uh, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. This is the Philosophy Now radio show. And we're talking about the art of living. Uh, and we've done commitment and well-being. Now we're going to talk about deception with Ziad Marah. Uh, so what do you mean by deception as you develop it in your book? I mean, obviously, no, everybody listening would know, have their own idea. But what do you particularly mean? Well, a number of things by it. I think that um, we live with quite a lot of false comfort when we describe ourselves uh -huh. as honest as the day is long, or that kind of polonious yeah. advice to liarities, be true to thyself, and so on. Um, I think that that's not a fair description of how human beings actually are. And yeah. so whether it's about 
um, leaping onto forms of explanation which is not actually the way the world is, whether it's about self-deception because our desires are contradictory, or whether it's about impression management and the way we actually are able to persuade other people to see us a certain way, um, we are riven through with um, the need to manage impressions. Yeah, so your, your book is, to be honest, about deception, really. That's right, more uh, honest about how dishonest uh, we inevitably have to be. Why, why do you think that's important? I mean, philosophers they want to get to the truth but you're talking about it in terms of how it affects our everyday life aren't you really yeah and i think well to be truthful about the nature of um human beings i think is to recognize that we are more complicated than we like to appear to be right um and that um quite often i think we narrow down and simplify the basis on which we judge each other are you a truth teller are you a liar and Mm -hmm. actually that's usually um uh, a proxy for some deeper questions. What are your motivations? The moral questions I don't think are uh-huh. purely about whether you've adhered nat- narrowly to a concept of the truth. I think there are lots of times when actually people tell the truth for all sorts of positive, uh, tell the truth for all sorts of negative ends, and yeah. vice versa. For, oh, for, yeah. um, so it's it's not a straight black and white of uh, deception bad and honesty good, really. And it. you want to get into the the details or the texture of what that means. That's right. Okay. Um, so, um, what's the borderline between acceptable and unacceptable deception then in that case? I think there you'd have to start looking at people's motivation. Yeah. So I think that we are motivated by a range of um, competing um, needs and desires, um, ranging from the sort of the noble through to the, to the uh, um, self-serving, let's say. And I think you'd have to ask the question, when we are practicing deception, as we do all the time, um, what kind of motive is it in service of? Yeah. So if someone says to a three-year-old child, what a wonderful, wonderful painting, that's the best thing I've ever seen, that probably wouldn't classify as a particularly toxic form of deception. That would be a right. generous spirited, a, a loyal lie, if you like. Or Father Christmas, is that a good deception or a bad <clears throat> deception? A great example. I, mean, I remember my, when my daughter first came to the... Uh, um, and actually, I hope my younger daughters aren't actually listening to this, but no, it's fine, they, they <laughs> yeah. know it too. Okay. My, when my eldest daughter first Sorry asked about me, that, Miss <laughs> Morale. <laughs> not sorry. She, um, my eldest daughter was saying, you know... First First of all, she kind of dismissed the tooth fairy, and then she asked me about Father Christmas. I, I said, well, are you asking me what I think, what other people should yeah. think? And she said, never mind. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, forget it, don't worry. And so I thought she wanted to run it one more never time. Never mind, you're getting too complicated already, Dad. Yeah, yeah. so there's convenience, uh, there's convenient, and, and that, uh, whereas actually where, where deception is actually um, an attempt to mislead for self-serving gain, I think that's where you cross that line. Okay, so it's about your intention, really, rather than the actual act itself. That's what I would say. And indeed, uh-huh. you can tell the truth in a way that is harmfully intended. There's a great line from Tennessee Williams where he says, all cruel people pride themselves on being paragons of frankness. Now, how many times have people say, I'm just being honest and yeah, actually act, yeah. ra- act cruelly? So I think our obligations to each other are not about what Oscar Wilde called lapsing into mere accuracy, yeah. but actually much more about taking responsibility for how we communicate with each other and what we owe each yeah, other. Yeah, and the consequences of what we say and what we do as well, yes. I guess. Um, what are the basic principles or criteria for... Um, uh, a good deception, I suppose, then. Is that, is that a good <laughs> well, it's okay. First of all, let's, let's establish this book isn't a DIY how-to guide. Right. Um, <laughs> how to deceive uh, No, far I from I was going to ask you that. We'll look at it again, but um, um, I think, you know, the... Um, it's, I think it's the case that for us to function well, we're, we're social animals, we're constituted by uh, uh-huh. our, our relationships to other people. We, we're no man as an island. Um, and so... We need to be credible in the eyes of other people. And it's, um, you know, there was a very unsettling juxtaposition put out by W.H. Auden once where he said sincerity is technique. And it's unsettling, but it's actually a recognition of the fact that to function adequately as a social being, Mm-hmm. We need to be able to maintain our reputations and our credibility. Right. Fundamentally, those reputations are for us to come across as nice and in control. And honest. And mm. nice. Well, part of, part of being nice and in being in control is about being trustworthy. Okay. You're trustworthy either in the first dimension of niceness, which is about uh-huh. being um, benevolently well-intended, good motives, but also you need to be trustworthy in terms of your competence, your ability. And actually, when you don't even have that basic level of skill, then you actually start looking like... Um, some of these characters from the comedy of embarrassment, whether it's Adam Partridge or David Brent, uh-huh. that's how it looks when you've got bad techniques. So Auden and sincerity is actually making both points. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Um, 
why sorry I was just, sorry to, to bring that just, I, when you were talking there it made me think about uh, actually 9-11 the anniversary coming uh-huh. up and I was um, looking at the book that Rowan Williams wrote about it which he calls Writing in the Dust right. and one of the points that he makes there is that um, when something uh, tremendous happens or terrible happens um, it's very tempting to just kind of move immediately into kind of action um, mm-hmm. to be seen to be taking control to doing something meaningful and that often leads to noble lies yeah. um, or you know mm-hmm. perhaps see some rather ignoble lies too mm-hmm. as we subsequently found yeah, out yeah. but the, the, the point about writing in the dust is that you have the ability actually just to kind of hold back yeah. to, to be able to cope with the vulnerability if you like yeah. of not knowing yeah. uh, that, that seems to be another way of sort of uh, you know dealing with this issue of not yeah, deceiving that suspension of judgement which actually funny enough I think ties a bit to the question I was trying to ask Piers earlier I think the uh, to be overly pre-committed to a particular world view mm. let's say you ask Chomsky what he thinks he won't need to wait a few, uh, quite a few seconds before he can tell you exactly what happened whereas actually if one has a bit more of that tolerance of ambiguity mm. before you crowd in with a preset opinion you might actually in that moment of reflection follow another path but when it comes to the actual arguments about what really happened usually people aren't arguing about the facts they're usually arguing about how the facts are to be construed once they mm. start forming those judgments So one person's liberation is another person's invasion. One person's unborn child is another person's fetus. So usually what's at stake when people are actually negotiating is not so much is what are the facts, what's true, what's false, but actually what's the significance what's the, and, and the moral valence of those things. So when the judgment comes in, it's, it's actually not usually about truth and falsity, though people often use the labels to support their claims. But we don't even know, I mean, the point is in the, mis- human, the often human misuse of language, you don't often know that we're doing it, it, we're biased just by the very words we used in our pers- on what perspective that creates for Absolutely. what we're talking about. That's right, because I think um, we, are, we are wired to um, with, with a lot of unconscious mechanisms to create belief and meaning in all sorts of ways that aren't even conscious to us, and there's a huge literature just showing that our sort of conscious activity is the tip mm. of an iceberg yeah, yeah. of activity and it's some lovely experiments that kind of illustrate that point over and over again. Yeah, can I just raise a point about um, euphemism and uh, the fact that we use different words to, dis- to um, according to the viewpoint we take? So you, if you talk about a fetus, you're probably pro-choice. If you talk about an unborn child, you're probably pro-life. Mm. Not necessarily, but mm. on the whole. I mean, there was a debate about torture recently and the, um, uh, and the findings uh, about... Um, well, it's really about whether the Geneva Convention should apply to terrorists mm-hmm. uh, on Radio 4. And uh, one of the, the protagonists was, was very anxious to say that something's only torture if it's used to extract information or it's not torture if the people doing it ha- were willing to be subjected to it themselves. In other words, redefining it. It yeah. seems to me that, I mean, one can... Of course we use words like torture, and, and that often suggests that we have a certain moral view, but we can often strip away the rhetoric and find some sort of reasonably factual descriptive base for what we're saying, and we can argue about the facts on that level, can't we? So when the debate about waterboarding happens, yeah, do you yeah. think that's a, that's a factual debate? Well, I think that uh, the debate about, oh, that's, it's, if somebody says, oh, well, it's okay because it's not torture, or it's okay because it's legal, as mm. George Bush seems to have thought, mm-hmm. uh, it may have been legal, who knows, that's another question. Mm. I think that the, in the way to, to get that debate back on track is to say, okay, call it torture, call it torture, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. is it okay to inflict this level of fear and pain on a person for this sort of reason? Mm-hmm. One can ask that question. Mm-hmm. And I think that when, if you are talking that way, you are less likely to be deceptive in your rhetoric than if you use those words. Yeah, and I'm not denying there's a, there's a, a, there's a place for actual explanations of what's going on mm. in the world yeah. to try and arbitrate to some extent. I just think that that's often massively overstated. I think we tend to walk, walk around with a sort of an idea that we've got somehow a transparent grip on the facts of the world and use that mm. somehow to arbitrate, whereas actually mm. mostly what's at stake. You know, no, one's disagree- no one disagrees about whether... Um, the um, uh, the intervention in Libya was um, uh, you know had a UN Security Council resolution. Mm. They are disputing whether there's been mission creep and whether Ooh. people have adhered to, adhered to that ba- boundary or not. But I think often the facts are uncontentiously agreed, and then mm. um, there's still a kind of a question yeah. of uh, assessing the, the impact. Uh, okay, of well, g- coming back to deception directly, uh, why do we still dis- despise deception when it's clearly the right thing to do morally? Say like if you were harbouring Jews and the Gestapo came to your house Mm. uh, the right thing to do would be be to lie to set them off the the trait but it still seems to be that we don't take into account the moral areas where it's good to deceive we just blanket deception as bad that's right, deception is a toxic term for us and I think because we are um, um, believers fundamentally and very aware of the fact that we can be misled and we we can't stand the thought that actually um, 
if one can tolerate the slippery, slippery slope, the noble lie, that somehow we could have the wool pulled over our own head, even if it's for our own good. We're very um, anxious about what to believe, who to believe, and how to seem believable. So the cred is the currency that we... This credibility is the currency we, we, we walk with. But what it le- leads us to is... Um, a sort of a desire for the unvarnished truth being a sort of a false comfort. So I think it's understandable that we hate the idea of being um, misled. At the same time, we thereby mislead ourselves from the extent to which mm-hmm. we actually have to um, shape and reshape our interactions with each other. So we, we have a double life on this front. So we, we can't... Re- it's complete honesty is impossible then, I think you would yeah, say. I would. Um, OK, just uh, how, how would you li- wish listeners to change their minds about deception... If you had, you know, um, just to encapsulate it's, I, it's it. It's not that I want to uh, revitalise the term and say everyone should run and not deceive yeah. each other. I think I would say that um, when you're um, trying to make moral judgments of each other, truth and falsity isn't the main way to do it. Actually, that's almost a distraction to some extent. The the bigger thing is to try and assess the motives in play mm-hmm. and understand that there are sometimes loyal lies and honest betrayals. Okay. Um, and so... Um, how about philosophical deception? Which lies do philosophers in particular tell themselves or use when doing philosophy? Um, I wouldn't want to put it strongly as a lie, but I do think that one of the things that was potentially animating the conversation with Mark about transcendence and, and uh, possibly the conversation with Piers about commitment is, I think, a habit to try and look for a skyhook, a sort of a God's eye point of view, if not actually a God. Yeah. It's not about lying. It's, I think, about a recognition, a pattern recognition and a desire to um, meet a very deep need, which is to answer the question, that we, the child's question, why, that reverberates through our lives. And not to mention a really um, telling experiment that a, a, a psychologist called Ellen Langham... Um, did in in the US where she went up to uh, a queue of people at a photocopier uh-huh. and asked them, um, can I, can I bun- you know, jump into the queue? To which the answer was typically no. Um, but when then she reapproached them, or another queue, with the, que- with, with the same question, can I jump in, but with the rider, because I need to make some copies, all of a sudden the answer <laughs> was yes, typically. Mm. All that had changed was the music of the magic word because. Uh-huh. Even though I need to make some copies was the reason everyone was there. Yeah. Therefore the explanation was empty of content. Mm. I think it tells us something fundamentally about our profound need for, expo- for an explanation, even if it is empty of that content. Okay. And I say that philosophy quite often will be dangling that, that search for certainty or looking for an answer for that need for certainty that I think we all yeah. do crave to some extent. But I think it's, it's false hope. So beware bogus certainties <coughs> then. Mm-hmm. Just okay. my point. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, you've been, lis- you've been listening to um, Mark Vernon, Pierce Ben, and uh, Ziad Mara talking about the well-being... Uh, commitment and deception. So uh, these books are out now at only nine ninety nine. Nine ninety nine, and uh, any good bookshop. So I urge you to um, go and buy one. Uh, any anything anybody wants to plug while you got the opportunity? I guess we will have websites and <coughs> multimedia activities mm. of various sorts. So. so just put the names into nice Google. Online and sometime. Yeah, I put, have to admit, <laughs> put my mind na- isn't out till November, but do form an orderly queue. Yeah, <laughs> do form an orderly queue. Mm. Uh, okay, next next week we're going to be doing um, feminist film theory, so that's one to to look up, out for. And uh, thank you for listening. This is the Philosophy Now radio show.